In the name of the Father, and the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Uh, as most of you know, we've been spending the first five weeks of the new year thinking about living a life that matters, and uh, how would we go about that, and we've been looking at that question through the lens of Jacob, uh, this wonderful Old Testament figure, and uh, his whole story really is about his climbing up the ladder from who he is to who he has it in him to become, Jacob's ladder. And he does this by wrestling with the different parts of himself, the good and the bad, the strong and the weak, the desire to be successful, the desire to be a good person. And last week we talked about how some of that growth and transformation only comes in relationship, when he's able to get outside of himself and let other people into his life. The Bible tells the story of Jacob in three acts, and today we get to the final of those acts where Jacob is described primarily as whose father he is. So every year, uh, every year in the middle of the winter, in fact, one week from today, a whole group of people, millions of Americans, stay up beyond their bedtime to watch the Academy Awards. And those coveted Oscars are given to the best director, the best actor, the best actress, the best uh, screenplay. Among those prestigious awards are those for the best male and the best female in a supporting role. I've always been intrigued by the supporting role category. I have no idea what it would be like to direct a movie. I have no idea what it would be like to compose a musical score or to design costumes. But I do know the feeling, as do you, of being a supporting actor in someone else's movie. Not the spotlight, but rather doing things that will still help to shape the plot. A friend is going through chemo, and you make a meal, or you drive her to an appointment. Her life is the drama, but you do things to just make life a little easier. Or the nation announces a disaster relief project for a ravaged area, and you may decide, I cannot go, I can't leave my work and my family, but you contribute what you can so that somebody else can go. Or the victim of a traffic car accident turns out to be um, a registered organ donor, and a few people who she will never know are given new life because of her. Many of us, probably most of us, dream at some point of playing the starring role. I don't know how many times on a basketball court as a kid, I counted down five, four, three, and he shoots, and he scores, and the crowd goes crazy. Ticker tape parade, please. But most of us, truth be told, will rarely, if ever, play that role. Others will much more often be in the spotlight and at the center of the action. My buddy Bobby Franco, back in high school, sank the winning shot. He couldn't shoot for the life of him. He shot the winning shot 
against our arch rivals. It was incredible. But I stole the pass that set up that shot. You remember that, right? I stole the pass. More often than not, others will be at the center of the action. We will be in a supporting role, but nevertheless, making important things happen in the process. When we worry, I think especially as we get a little older, that our lives are passing by in sort of a parade of trivialities, when we yearn to do something that really matters and sometimes feel like failures because we haven't, I have found that one really effective cure is to find somebody who needs help and to reach out to that person. A reader wrote to Ann Landers suggesting a cure for teenage moodiness. Get them involved in some form of community service, she wrote. Teens who help others are 50% less likely to join gangs, use drugs, or become pregnant. Not bad advice. Some of you, I suspect, have read Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation, which consists of the recollections of men and women who served in World War II. And I remember that when I read that, what struck me was not just the accounts themselves. It was the tone of so many of those memories. The experiences that those soldiers and nurses had were often just terrible. They lived in the mud and the cold. Uh, many of them got wounded. A good deal of them watched friends die. And yet the book is strikingly free of complaint or self-pity. Instead, what comes through is a sense of pride at having done something that really made a difference. Only a few of those men and women that were interviewed were animal admirals or generals. Most of them were just soldiers, pilots, um, sailors. They were nurses. They were men and women who were just doing their job. And at the same time, making the world safe for democracy. And that need to feel useful, to feel important, it seems to me continues all the way through until the latter stages of our lives. I have a colleague who is now retired and he spends a good deal of time in Florida, no surprise. And he talks about going to communities where he finds populations of widows and widowers who are really just killing time. Watching television programs whose dialogue they can't hear, shopping for things that they don't really need, just to have something to do. But he also talks about communities where elderly people go to public schools and they serve lunches and they tutor kids in reading and people from a local college come to interview them about what life was like in America in the early 20th century. Eric Erickson, the psychologist, wrote that people approaching the last chapter in their lives have to choose 
between stagnation and generativity. Stagnation, he defines as thinking only about ourselves. How do I feel today? What aches? Who called me? And who ignored me? Generativity is worrying about the next generation. And what kind of world are we leaving behind? We have probably all listened to or read these interviews with a man or a woman who has somehow managed to climb out of an inner city ghetto um, and gone on to do great things. The interviewer inevitably will ask, how did you do it? How did you crawl out of these discouraging circumstances, an absentee father or uh, a mother on welfare, gangs, roaming the streets selling drugs and become a doctor or a scholar or a congressperson. And almost inevitably, you will hear four words. There was this teacher. There was this coach. There was this person at church who always took an interest in me and loaned me books and drove me to practice. Somewhere along the line, you will hear about an actor in a supporting role. So, in Genesis, you wondered when we would get to Genesis, <laughs> there is this peculiar incident involving Jacob's sons. Joseph, of course, was the favorite. He was the apple of his father's eye, hence the coat of many colors. Um, you would think that perhaps um, Jacob would have learned something from his own dysfunctional family about the uh, dangers of favoritism, but no, he plays the favorite. And so Joseph's brothers are jealous. So one day, Jacob sends Joseph out into the field to look for his brothers. Apparently, Joseph gets to stay home with dad while all the other brothers have to go out and work. But he can't find them in the place that he thinks they should be. Along the way, he meets a man in the field who says to him, what are you looking for? And when Joseph tells him he's looking for his brothers, the man says, oh, yes, I overheard them said that they were going to Dothan, a nearby city. So Joseph goes to find them there. And they, in a fit of jealous rage, sell him as a slave to a passing caravan. From there, he will be taken to Egypt, where, after a brief prison sentence, he will wind up as the Pharaoh's chief minister of agriculture, guiding Egypt through a terrible famine. Joseph's brothers will actually come down to Egypt to find food for themselves, and so the whole biblical drama unfolds. So here's my question. Where did the man in the field come from? The Bible rarely wastes words. There are minor characters in the Bible, but none that are superfluous. So what's the significance of the man who Joseph meets? Well, just think about it. If Joseph hadn't encountered that man, he would have never known where his brothers were. He would likely have turned and gone home. 
because he probably didn't want to deal with them anyway. You know, you have family members like this. Any excuse. So he would not have been sold to the caravan traders, which sounds good initially. But remember, then Pharaoh would never have gotten Joseph's advice, which made Egypt the only place in the Middle East where there was abundant grain during the famine. Jacob's family would never have migrated to Egypt. They would never have become slaves. So there would never have been a Moses or an Exodus or, an Exodus or the Ten Commandments. The whole history of the world would have been radically different. So do you think that man in the field could even remember meeting a teenage boy who couldn't find his brothers and having a one-sentence conversation with him? Do you think he went home to his wife that night and said, I just had a one-sentence conversation that changed the whole course of history? No. And what about the messengers, the angels, who have come into our lives? What about the person that invited us to the party where we met the person we spent the rest of our life with? Or the neighbor who recommended that book, which completely changed how we thought about ourselves or our family? Every life touches so many other lives. And very rare indeed is the person who knows what a difference he or she has made. Can one ordinary person really change things? Can you and I actually affect history? Well, in all honesty, very rarely if we're acting all by ourselves. But by being good people and doing good things together, caring about the common good and not just our own, we can make a difference. You're going to think this is an advertisement for real. real. Um, some of you who are moviegoers of a certain age will remember Harrison Ford's 1985 movie, Witness, which is the story of a 12-year-old Amish boy who lives in rural Pennsylvania and who happens to witness a murder in the restroom of a railroad terminal. Harrison Ford plays the detective who is assigned to protect that boy from his killers, who know that he can identify them. Along the way, Ford discovers that the murder was actually carried out by some crooked cops, who we were talking about at the men's retreat just this week, <laughs> and who are actually colleagues of his. And he becomes their next target. So he has to go into hiding himself among the Amish. The villains eventually find out, and they come looking for him. Peter Weir, the director of Witness, was actually an Australian, is actually an Australian, who grew up watching American Westerns. And that becomes very clear as you watch Witness. For example, there is this one scene where Ford is trapped in a barn, and he manages to escape by hanging over one side of the horse so that the people on the other side can't see him, just as Gary Cooper did in the classic movie High Noon. In fact, much of the climactic showdown um, centers around memories from High Noon, 
So towards the end of witness, these three intimidating villains appear over the crest of the hill, each carrying their guns. Moviegoers immediately think of High Noon, and they think about the scene where, um, in that scene, uh, Gary Cooper's pacifist Quaker wife, played by Grace Kelly, overcomes her opposition to violence. She grabs a gun and she shoots the last of the bad guys before he can shoot her husband. The moral of the story is that sometimes you have to violate your most cherished beliefs to keep the bad guys from winning. You have to fight fire with fire. So when you're watching Witness, you are aware that this young Amish boy knows where Ford's gun is hidden. And you expect him to violate his community's beliefs. He's going to go get the weapon, and he's going to save his protector, just as Grace Kelly did. But where surprises us. The boy runs, not for the gun, but for the town bell, summoning all of the farmers from the surrounding fields. And these hundred or more Amish men stare down these villains, conveying the message, we will not permit this evil to be perpetrated in our midst. Because ordinary people joining forces together to, can do things that individual heroes simply cannot do. In the end, my deepest faith is that whoever we are, however much or little we have accomplished in our lives, we matter to God. So Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, but friends. Oscar Wilde once wrote, the nicest feeling in the world is to do a good deed anonymously, and then have somebody find out about it. <laughs> Strip that statement of its cynicism, and I would absolutely agree. One of the important messages I get from my religious view of life is that when I do something kind and thoughtful, or when I don't do something that is mean or hurtful and nobody applauds, somebody still knows. Somebody knows. The assurance that how I earn and spend my money how I spend my time, what I say or don't say matters to God, that invests my whole life with a deeper level of meaning. We don't have to be the one that finds a cure for cancer to make a difference in the world. We don't have to write a beautiful novel or a great screenplay to be noticed by God. Mother Teresa said, Few of us can do great things. All of us can do small things with great love. We are the supporting cast of a great and ongoing drama. And it is our inestimable privilege to be a part of that. Amen.